Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, verbal abuse, and domestic abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the fall of 1990, 43-year-old Betty Broderick sat in a courtroom for her latest trial. She was used to being in the courthouse by now. After her marriage dissolved into a bitter, acrimonious feud, she'd spent countless hours in front of judges. But this was her first time in criminal court, her first time as the defendant instead of the plaintiff. Betty crossed her arms and set her jaw as the prosecutor, Carrie Wells, pressed play on a boombox at the front of the room. The entire courtroom listened as a recording of Betty and her son, Daniel, played. For half an hour, Daniel cried as he told Betty all she cared about was money and getting rid of his father's new wife. Daniel believed his mother had been mad long enough. He begged her to move on and stop using bad words or else he would never be able to see her again. His father wouldn't allow it. Betty's son pleaded with her to change her ways, to no avail. The desperation in Daniel's voice, coupled with Betty's stubborn selfishness, sucked the energy out of the room. Many onlookers covered their faces, crossed their arms, and shed tears. Most mothers would sense the need and helplessness Daniel was feeling in those moments and find some way to soothe their child. Not Betty. She pinned anything and everything she could on her ex-husband, Dan. No matter what her son said, Betty would not take responsibility. It was all Dan's fault, and he was going to pay. Picture a murderer a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we met Betty Broderick, a La Jolla socialite whose world fell apart when her successful husband, Dan, left her for a much younger woman. We learned how the Brodericks' bitter divorce unleashed an unpredictable, raging violence in Betty. This week, we'll explain how Betty Broderick sought the ultimate revenge, shooting Dan and his new wife in cold blood. We'll hear how her televised trial captivated the country. Finally, we'll dive deeper into her lack of remorse and see where Betty is today. Today. 
By the fall of 1989, Betty Broderick's life looked nothing like she'd imagined it as a little girl. Twenty years prior, she married Dan Broderick in hopes of one day living the American dream. From an outsider's point of view, Betty had obtained all of that. Once. Dan and Betty found a haven in La Jolla, California. They raised four kids, skied in Colorado, owned boats, and frequented country clubs. It looked like they had it all. But behind closed doors, Betty and Dan's marriage was, at best, strained. Fed up with Betty's incessant dissatisfaction and high standards, Dan began an affair with his legal assistant, Linda Kolkina. Betty accused Dan of being unfaithful many, many times, but he repeatedly denied having an affair and told her she was crazy. His gaslighting took a toll, and Betty attempted suicide in 1983, on her 36th birthday. Still, Dan denied that he was cheating. It wasn't until after Dan left Betty in 1985 that he finally admitted his involvement with Linda. The couple officially divorced in 1986, but financial settlements and custody agreements remained points of contention. Dan set strict rules for Betty, docking her alimony payments and preventing her from seeing the children if she acted out. On multiple occasions, Betty's frustration led to bizarre and extreme episodes. She trespassed onto Dan's property, violated restraining orders, drove her car into Dan's house, defaced court documents, and left profanity-filled voicemails on Dan and Linda's answering machine. Betty accused Dan of exploiting his connections in the city as a way to control her and prevent her from getting the divorce settlement she felt she deserved. After all, Dan was the president of the San Diego Bar Association. After Dan and Linda married in April of 1989, Betty just couldn't take it anymore. Later that same year, on Halloween, Betty's sons, Daniel and Rhett, asked their father if they could spend the night trick-or-treating with their mother. Dan refused, but wouldn't explain his reasoning. Betty was particularly upset by this because it was Rhett's last year in elementary school. Dan didn't know it then, but this denial started a domino effect that would lead to unspeakable violence. Five days later, on Sunday, November 5, 1989, Betty Broderick woke at four in the morning. It was two days before her 42nd birthday. Her son, Rhett, was fast asleep next to her. She crept out of the room carefully so she wouldn't wake him. She longed for a way to gain back control of her life. No matter how hard she tried, the only weapon she possessed was her mouth, and she was going up against Dan, whose weapon was the law. He knew how to find loopholes, trick her, and paint her as an unfit mother to assuage his ego. The last few years of her life had been wasted by this back-and-forth battle. She felt hopeless, like she could never win. Betty got dressed, got in her car, and drove away from her ocean view home in La Jolla Shores. Her handbag sat on the passenger seat beside her. 
Inside was her 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. Betty thought about going to the beach to take her own life, anything to end the pain. Instead, she drove into San Diego, into Dan's neighborhood in Marston Hills. She parked outside Dan and Linda's Georgian-style red brick house. All was quiet. It was 5.30 a.m. The house was locked, but Betty had brought a ring of keys belonging to her eldest daughter, Kim. One of them was for Dan and Linda's house. She tried a few keys until she found the right one. Then Betty unlocked the back door and slipped inside. She slowly moved through the rooms and walked up the stairs to the master bedroom. Betty just wanted to talk to Dan to figure out some way to live peacefully and come to an understanding about custody. But every time Betty would try to get through to Dan, he would insist on going through their lawyers. Every time she came to the house, he would call the police. This was her only option now. Inside the bedroom, Dan and Linda were fast asleep. Through the darkness, Betty took one step into the room, but Linda woke up and said, call the police. Betty aimed her revolver and fired five shots in a row. The first bullet struck 28-year-old Linda in her chest. As she turned over, Betty shot Linda in the back of the head, killing her instantly. As 44-year-old Dan attempted to flee from the bed and grab the phone, Betty shot him in the back. The bullet fractured a rib and caused a tear in his right lung. Dan said, okay, okay, you got me. He slumped over on the floor as the next two shots missed. One hit the nightstand and the other hit the wall. Betty walked around the bed, stepped over Dan as he bled out, and yanked the phone cord out of the wall to prevent him from calling 911. She left Dan to die, suffering for up to half an hour, choking on his own blood. Betty fled the scene and called a girlfriend from a phone booth. She confessed, I finally did it. I shot Dan. I could hear him gurgling in his own blood. Disgusted, the friend hung up on her. Betty drove to her daughter Lee's apartment where she vomited multiple times. She left her purse there with the gun still inside. Friends came to check on Dan and Linda and found the bodies. They immediately called the police. By the end of the day, Betty surrendered to the downtown San Diego police station, where she was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and transferred to the Women's County Jail. She admitted to shooting the couple, but insisted she did not plan the attack. She asserted she only intended to confront Dan and Linda about the custody dispute, then commit suicide. But something that morning stopped her from killing herself. She believed that's what Dan would have wanted, and she wouldn't dare let him win. She wanted the final say. The first night in captivity, 
Betty was held in a padded cell on suicide watch, as is standard procedure for accused murderers. Normally, prisoners emerge from this practice the following morning terrified or humbled. Not Betty. When she left isolation, she was wired and cheerful. Betty acted like a chatty schoolgirl, engaging in small talk right off the bat. Her cheerful attitude confused prison guards and inmates alike. Her lack of remorse was made all the more evident as she told anyone and everyone she performed a public service. She claimed that killing Dan and Linda, quote, was the most sincere, honest act of self-defense that there can be in the world. It was justifiable homicide against a weapon you can't see. And nobody can tell me Dan Broderick and his cheap little bitch sidekick didn't have a weapon. Betty suggested that Dan's law experience was so dangerous and threatening that it was justifiable for her to act in self-defense. She felt she should be treated exactly like someone who acted in self-defense and therefore not be arrested. In jail, Betty's local celebrity made her a target to some inmates. The Broderick divorce had been in the papers for years. Betty was known as the woman who couldn't make it on $16,000 a month. The inmates intimidated her and pushed her around so much that after only a few days, Betty was removed from the general population and transferred to an isolated area for high-risk prisoners. Despite the intense isolation, Betty's only complaints were the lack of good coffee and dental floss. She said, quote, I was glad to be in that little room, away from everything, where nobody could get at me. For the first time in years, I felt safe. Meanwhile, friends and family mourned Dan and Linda. Hundreds of people attended their funeral. Dan's casket was adorned with red roses, Linda's with white. Friends of the couple delivered loving eulogies and remarked on the affection the couple shared for each other. Linda and Dan Broderick were buried side by side at Greenwood Memorial Park in San Diego. When Betty heard about the service, she called Dan a fraud, saying, quote, he hadn't stepped foot in a church in all the years he'd been in San Diego, and they bury him like he's the Pope. Why is he being buried like a good Catholic father when he deserted his family? Dan's brother, Larry Broderick, was named the executor of his estate and in turn obtained custody of the two Broderick boys, Rhett and Daniel, and took them back home with him to Colorado. Kimberly, 19, was off at college in Arizona at the time, and Lee, 18, remained in the San Diego area, living on her own. Close friends of the slain newlyweds regretted that they hadn't foreseen the shootings and done more to stop Betty. Dan himself once predicted, it's not going to end until one of us is gone. Up next, the jury is divided. Is Betty a battered, scorned woman or a cold-blooded killer? Now back to the story. As 45-year-old Betty Broderick waited for her double murder trial, sympathy letters started pouring in from divorcees and abused wives from around the country. 
One wrote, Lawyers and judges simply refuse to protect mothers against this type of legalized emotional terrorism. Soon, local and national press clamored for exclusive interviews with her. Everyone became obsessed with the story of the woman scorned. Many women sympathized with Betty for being traded in for a younger model and therefore rooted for her. They saw themselves in her and estimated that her story could easily be repeated if they, too, were pushed to their breaking point. Despite Betty's lack of remorse, her impact on the conversation about divorce in America is undeniable. Even though many of Betty's supporters didn't condone murder, the response to the case shed light on the divorce system. Time and time again, husbands cheat on their wives, walk out on their families, and get away with it, scot-free. The divorce system was designed to benefit whoever had more resources financially, who was more vicious and ruthless, and who knew what when it came to the law. Another woman wrote about Betty's case, the inequities in court proceedings and financial settlements are rarely believed or understood except by the women who experience them. Isn't it time we take a good look at our courts and our system of divorce? This outpouring of support may have felt like justification to Betty, only reinforcing her lack of remorse. Betty finally felt validated by the attention and saw it as a way to tell her side of the story. This time, Dan couldn't twist her words. She regularly called reporters on the payphone from jail. Betty famously told the Los Angeles Times, It makes me furious when people say Dan and Linda were the victims because my children and I were the victims. There were two dead people but five victims. Jail psychologists saw Betty's cynical and incredulous take on what she referred to as the incident or the accident as a sign that she still harbored anger. Betty found this assessment humorous. She felt she had every right to be angry and to do what she had done. Anything to the contrary seemed ludicrous. She took it as an opportunity to further paint herself as the victim and blame Dan for his treatment of her. While Betty maintained her persona as a battered woman in the press, many outsiders disagreed. In fact, Betty was living in an ocean view home with her boyfriend. She was receiving $16,000 a month in spousal support. To many, she was living a life of luxury following her divorce. This was further evident in her insistence that she didn't plan the killings, saying, I had just bought about $400 worth of groceries on Saturday. I bought fresh veal and swordfish and all this wonderful stuff. Do you think I knew? I had no idea I was going to do this at all. I didn't know I was doing it. The horrific double murder sent shockwaves through San Diego. Dan Broderick was a well-known and feared medical malpractice attorney with an impressive track record. Dan's showy proposal to Linda made the gossip column in 1988. Similarly, Betty and Dan's highly publicized divorce was a hot-button topic regularly discussed in the community. So when Betty assassinated the newlyweds, it truly became the talk of the town. 
television crews came in droves, desperate to get any footage they could of the crime scene and the Broderick children. At cocktail parties, guests would joke about husbands having affairs. With a second wife on his arm, one La Jolla attorney joked it was, be nice to the ex-wife week. Bumper stickers started appearing in the area like, do you know where ex-wife is tonight? Free Betty so she can kill another lawyer and burn Betty burn. Nearly a year after the murders, in October of 1990, Betty's trial for the murders of Dan and Linda Broderick began. It was the first San Diego case broadcast on court TV. She was charged with two counts of murder, to which she pleaded not guilty. Because Betty admitted to firing the fatal shots, the jury could select one of five options. First-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, or not guilty. The only way she could receive a not guilty verdict would be if the jury unanimously agreed she was acting in self-defense. The prosecution argued that Betty schemed and orchestrated the murder over a long period of time and cited the multiple threats and arrests made over the course of their protracted divorce. These incidents acted as evidence of intent to commit murder. The defense maintained the killings were an act of self-defense. Betty's lawyer emphasized her longtime suffering as an emotionally abused wife, kept under the thumb of her powerful lawyer ex-husband. The defense continuously drilled the following facts into the jury. Betty was an active, loving mother. The divorce alienated and depressed her, and her mental state was unstable on that morning in November. The defense called 19 witnesses and tried to establish that Betty was suffering from battered woman syndrome. This is a psychological condition that develops in victims of domestic abuse. Oftentimes, the court may recognize that a battered woman may act violently or even kill her abuser because she believes they pose an imminent danger due to her past experiences with the abuser. In such cases, the court may rule self-defense if the abuse and threat can be proven. During the trial, Betty's daughters, 20-year-old Kim and 19-year-old Lee, both took the stand. Kim testified for the prosecution and Lee testified for the defense. Kim testified that her mother hated Dan and that she often wished the children had never been born. Kim highlighted Betty's ruthless, vindictive nature, recalling the time Kim turned to Linda when she needed help getting an abortion. Upon finding out, Betty told the whole family and one of Kim's friend's mothers about the procedure. Even though Betty herself had gotten an abortion 15 years earlier, Betty embarrassed her daughter simply because she confided in her stepmother, Linda. In contrast, Lee was supportive of her mother and damning of her father. Lee spoke about Dan's violent temper and habit to break things that would frustrate him, like the lawnmower or kicking the family's dogs. Lee said nobody would want to disobey him or make him mad when he was home from work. 
Lee had a particularly combative relationship with her father. Struggling in school and with drugs, Lee was not even permitted to own a key to her father's house. At one point, Dan disowned Lee and cut her out of his will because of her drug use. Dan told Kimberly that he planned to put her back in the will as soon as things settled. But unfortunately, Dan died before he could change it. The family maid, Maria Montez, noticed that the young boys were happy around their mother and frightened and silent around Dan, in fear of being punished. On multiple occasions, the boys would hide in the backyard when they were supposed to go back to their father. Other defense witnesses explained how Betty's disposition greatly altered after the divorce. The only time she seemed content was when she was with her children, particularly her young sons. But the prosecution painted a very different picture of Betty Broderick. Her diaries were read into evidence, and her irate, profane messages she left on Dan and Linda's voicemail were played. In one message, Betty's son pleaded with her to quit calling his father bad names. In the call, to further villainize Dan, Betty accused him of suffering from chronic alcoholism. However, the coroner disagreed with this assessment as his liver looked normal. An attorney and friend of Dan and Linda's, Sharon Blanchett, also spoke for the prosecution. Sharon claimed that Betty lashed out at Dan because she wouldn't know what to do if the divorce was finally settled. If everything was handled, Betty would have no reason to interact with Dan. Blanchett said she was a woman who used her children to her purpose, and her purpose was to make life as miserable for Dan as she possibly could. She killed him because there wasn't going to be anything more to argue with him about. Another hiccup in Betty's narrative was the existence of her boyfriend at the time, Bradley Wright, six years her junior. He surprisingly stuck by Betty's side following the murders. Brad dutifully handled the sale of Betty's house, stored her furniture, and brought her mail to her in jail. Bradley's presence in Betty's life contradicted the persona Betty projected as an isolated exile. Was she really a victim stuck under Dan's thumb if she was romantically involved with someone else? To the public and to Dan, Betty insisted that Dan reigned over every aspect of her life. Betty said, for five years, he had someone to sleep with, party with, have dinner with. I'm standing there going, what about me? Betty claimed that Dan's actions forced her into isolation. She was completely alone. But that wasn't necessarily true. Only two weeks after the Brodericks separated, Betty found comfort in the arms of Bradley T. Wright, a businessman in La Jolla. Their relationship was kept under wraps, so Betty would appear more like a victim as she fought for spousal support and custody. By 1989, Brad and Betty had been seeing each other for four years. She did have someone to sleep with, party with, and have dinner with. However, Betty denied that she was intimate with Brad, even though they regularly slept in the same bed. 
In fact, only a week before the murder, Betty and Brad spent a romantic vacation in Acapulco together. However, Betty maintained that she never brought Brad anywhere. She was embarrassed that he was six years younger than her and didn't want to appear like a midlife joke. When asked further about the nature of their relationship, Betty said it was like having a dog, but he was house trained. But Betty's daughters, Kim and Lee, often questioned their mother about her relationship with Brad. They wondered why she was still so hung up on her divorce from Dan if she had moved on and found a new partner. Betty defended herself, saying, How can you equate the two? Brad doesn't support me. Kim postured that Betty could never admit that she'd ever have a happy life. That would be admitting that she could get on with herself and that Dan didn't ruin her life. Kim went so far as to speculate that hating Dan and Linda was Betty's reason for living. Moving on wasn't an option, because then what would she have left? When Betty took the stand, she rejected all of these claims. She repeatedly called out Dan's controlling behavior. When asked about the day of the murder, Betty claimed she had no memory of pulling the trigger that fired the fatal shots. She said, It was such a panicked thing. It was never a thing where I even aimed. I pulled the trigger real fast, no hesitation at all. After firing five shots, Betty realized Dan was going to call the police before she could even leave the house. That was when she yanked the phone cord out of the wall and took off. She maintained that there were pieces of that morning she can't remember, like driving to Dan's house or fleeing the scene and calling her friend from a payphone. To address Betty's mental state during the murders, prominent psychiatrist Dr. Park Elliott Dietz testified for the prosecution. While he agreed Betty suffered from depression, Dietz asserted that Betty was not insane or mentally ill. It's important to note that a not guilty verdict by reasons of insanity only applies when a killer cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. Killers who suffer from personality disorders, like Betty, know that the act is wrong, but they simply act anyway. Dietz explained Betty suffered from dual personality disorders, narcissistic and histrionic or borderline. Dietz said, Unlike an insane or mentally ill person, she controls the disorder. The disorder is not controlling her. Dietz cited her multiple threats on Dan and Linda's lives, throwing things at Dan, locking him out of the house, criticizing him in front of other people, grabbing people by the arm and digging in her fingernails, using her children as pawns, and kicking Kim and Lee out of the house. A narcissist is hypersensitive to how they're perceived by others. A grand sense of entitlement and feelings of jealousy often override their rationale. Clinically, to receive a narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis, a person would have to fit five out of nine characteristics. Dietz said Betty fit nine out of nine. As for the histrionic personality disorder, Dietz pointed to Betty's recurring temper tantrums and inappropriate exaggeration. 
In one of Betty's diaries, she claimed that Dan, quote, kidnapped my children and held me hostage for four years and terminated me as a mother. In response to this passage, Dietz said, these are colorful metaphors that attract a lot of attention, but they're hardly an accurate historical account. After six weeks of testimony, the jury was sent to deliberate, but they were deadlocked, unable to reach a unanimous verdict. Ten jurors wanted a murder conviction, but the other two pushed for manslaughter. Eventually, after several days, the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. Coming up, Betty's trial comes to an end, and a new chapter of her life begins. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1991, 47-year-old Betty Broderick stood trial again for double murder after the first jury couldn't reach a verdict. But this time around, the jury came to a unanimous decision. On December 10th, two years after Betty shot her ex-husband Dan and his new wife Linda, the jury declared Betty Broderick guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. As the verdict was read, a hint of a smile crossed Betty's lips. She'd escaped the first-degree murder classification. She was sentenced to the maximum term possible, 32 years to life in prison. San Diego Superior Court Judge Thomas J. Whelan said, the time had come to abolish the circus of her trial and divorce and start the healing. Whelan described Betty's action of tearing the phone out of the wall to prevent Dan from calling an ambulance as a high degree of callousness. He sentenced Betty to two consecutive 15-year-to-life terms and added two additional years for using a firearm. State law dictates that Betty must serve two-thirds of the sentence before applying for parole. Therefore, at a minimum, Betty faced 18 years behind bars. If the judge had allowed the terms to be served concurrently, at a minimum, she would have had to serve 10 years. As Judge Whelan outlined the sentence, Betty ignored the proceedings and read letters and legal papers. Betty only interacted once during the two-hour hearing when Deputy District Attorney Carrie Wells called Betty a very disturbed woman. At this remark, Betty looked directly at Wells and smiled before returning her attention back to her papers. After the judge read the sentence, Betty's daughter, Kim, privately spent a short period of time with her mother. When she entered back into the courtroom, she said, I'm just glad it's over. Betty's defense lawyer, Jack Early, planned to appeal the sentence and verdict in the hopes of ensuring Betty would not die in prison. As part of his appeal, he planned to illustrate the allegation that Dan once hired a hitman to kill Betty. Early insisted that in 1984 and 1985, Dan talked to several people in his office about how to hire such a person, how much it would cost him, and how he'd have to ensure that it couldn't be traced back to him. 
The judge ultimately dismissed this allegation since Betty did not have any knowledge of Dan hiring a hitman. Therefore, there was no way that this action could have influenced her state of mind that fateful morning. Strangely enough, Larry Broderick, Dan's brother and executor of his estate, did not attend the day of the sentencing. He'd been the most vocal family member since the murders, but on that day, Terry, another brother, took his place. Betty's oldest daughter, Kim, sat with Terry and a friend, while Betty's youngest daughter, Lee, sat with her mother's relatives. At the time of the verdict, Betty's sons, Rhett and Daniel, lived with Larry's estranged wife, Kathy, in Colorado. Betty had asked her parents to show their support at her trial so the jury could see that they cared about her, but they wouldn't attend. Hurt, Betty explained, they don't want anything to do with it. It's too off their scope of experience. When reporters requested to interview Betty's parents, they again refused. Betty reminisced on her parents' lofty expectations. They were proud that their daughter married a doctor, but when Dan divorced her, they abandoned her. Betty shared more about her mother's lack of interest in her, saying, if you called home at midnight and you had a flat tire, she'd lie in bed and have people bring her tea and crumpets while she worried about you. And you'd still be out on the freeway. What she doesn't understand is that she only had one choice, his funeral or mine. I hate to tell you, she would have preferred mine. My daughter killed herself is more acceptable than my daughter stood up for herself. In 1992, Betty was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey on her hit daytime talk show via satellite. Her appearance on the show sparked further discussion about Betty's mental state. Many women saw themselves in Betty. After being traded in for a younger model, Betty no longer fit in with the life she had built all those years ago. Without Dan, Betty lost her sense of self. She said, I bought into a 1950s leave-it-to-beaver marriage, and he stole my whole life. In 1993, Dan and Betty's sons, 16-year-old Rhett and 14-year-old Daniel, asked to live with someone other than their Aunt Kathy. Daniel opted to move in with his older sister, Kim, in La Jolla. Rhett moved in with Betty's brother, Gerard, in St. Louis. In 2006, Betty's youngest son, Rhett, appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show to tell his side of the story as an adult. He remembers all of the times he and his brother asked his dad to live with Betty because not having her kids was driving her crazy and that she could do something extremely irrational if she didn't have us. After being shuffled through family, friends, and relatives over the years, Rhett rebelled in his teen years. The public eye made him feel like he was under the microscope. People seemed to blame any action he took on the sins of his parents. But Rhett refused to let his parents' tragic end define him. He expressed a desire for his mother to be released from prison as she'd been there the majority of his life and no longer poses a threat now that Dan and Linda are gone. In January 2010, 
62-year-old Betty Broderick had served 19 years of her sentence and came up for parole. Her four children were divided on whether or not they believed she should be released. Lee and Rhett sided with their mother, while Kim and Daniel did not want her to be released. Dan and Linda's families made their opposition known as well. At the hearing, Betty repeatedly blamed the victims and showed no remorse. Deputy District Attorney Richard Sachs said she was hellbent on getting her pound of flesh, hellbent on revenge. Due to her lack of remorse, Betty was denied parole. In 2015, Betty released a tell-all book titled Betty Broderick, Telling on Myself. After 25 years behind bars, Betty finally told her side of the story the way she wanted. The book gave inside access into Betty's history and state of mind, and yet again, people were divided. Some found new ways to sympathize with Betty, particularly for the way Dan treated her, while others saw her in a new light, vengeful and violent to her core. In January 2017, 69-year-old Betty once again applied for parole. During the 11-hour-long hearing, District Attorney Bonnie Dumanis stated, Elizabeth Broderick remains an unreasonable risk of danger to society. She still has not developed appropriate insight or remorse for these gruesome murders, which she committed with a callous disregard for human suffering. After a long hearing, the parole board unanimously voted against releasing Betty from prison. They denied for 15 years, the longest term they could, only if Betty meets certain criteria could she request another hearing sooner. Otherwise, she will have to wait another 15 years to reapply for parole. Betty's case inspired the 1992 TV movie series A Woman Scorned, The Betty Broderick Story. Meredith Baxter, who played Betty, earned an Emmy Award nomination for her portrayal. A follow-up was released titled... Her Final Fury, Betty Broderick, The Last Chapter. The Broderick story will soon be adapted as the second installment of the USA anthology series Dirty John in 2020, starring Amanda Peet and Christian Slater. After the final verdict was read, Dan Broderick's brother Larry said of his ex-sister-in-law, "'Monsters come in all kinds of packages.' They don't all look like Charles Manson. People see a middle-aged, matronly housewife with an income and material goods that are far beyond the reach of most Americans, and they think it's impossible for this person to be a monster. But monsters come in all kinds of gentle-looking packages, and the press and American people should face up to that. Today, Betty remains in prison. She will not be eligible for parole again until 2032. By that time, Betty will be 85 years old.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Rachel Taff, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm -hmm.